You're now listening to episode 25 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here with seasoned real estate investor Matt Faircloth to discuss the state of the real estate market, investor relations, raising capital, and much more. Since 2004, Matt and his wife Liz have gained vast experience in bringing both residential and commercial properties to their highest and best use. This includes repositioning single-family homes, multifamily, apartment buildings, mixed-use retail, and office space. Before we jump right into today's episode, we want to remind you about our virtual workshops. They are not a webinar, but rather our virtual workshops are a highly interactive experience that puts you in a room with our tax strategists as well as fellow real estate investors. We will discuss a topic for the first 15 to 20 minutes and then open the room up for questions. This is the perfect opportunity to get answers to those real estate tax and accounting questions that you've been dying to ask, while at the same time discovering what other real estate investors are asking. You could sign up for our virtual workshops by visiting therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual dash workshop or by following the link in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's get right into the show. Matt, pleasure to have you on today. Uh, would you mind giving us a little bit of uh, background around your story and how you got started in real estate? Sure. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Brandon, for having me here. Um, so my backstory is, briefly is that I graduated from Virginia Tech uh, with a degree in engineering, but realized very quickly I didn't want to be an engineer. Uh, I didn't want to do what an engineer did. So I got a job in sales, did that for a while, and then, um, then got into real estate in 2005, which was a great time to get into real estate. You know, quit my day job, got married, quit my day job, and started investing full time. Um, and I survived the uptick and then survived the downturn. Uh, you know, in two thousand and nine, ten, eleven, and there, and have built a business of, of real estate ownership, real estate management. You know, since two thousand and five, and we've gotten into all kinds of cool stuff, such as you know, we've done apartment building deals, we've done single family home deals, we've done a lot of fix and flips, we own an office complex. We're into a lot of interesting stuff, and we continue to expand. Uh, we do a lot of it, you know, through raising money from investors uh, and raising raising a passive investors that want to get involved in what we do without doing the day to day stuff that it takes to own real estate. So that that's me and my company in a nutshell. As you know, one thing I just noticed you point you said there was you survived the uptick and the downtick. You know, the recent recession. And some of our clients, some of the people in the industry at this point, think we may be close to the top of the market. Mm -hmm. We are. Uh, What's your opinion on that? And what did you attribute to surviving the last downturn? Oh, well, okay. First of all, I don't know. And I think that there's a lot of opinions out there on where the market, what the market's going to do. I can tell you, being someone who went through the downturn, that a lot of there's a lot of theories out there that like oh we're due for the downturn because it hasn't happened for a while or because I mean that that's like sitting at the roulette wheel and saying and, and betting on a double zero because it's due you know because um, it hasn't hit in a while on the roulette wheel and so then not a good excuse the economists that are way smarter than me have looked at the our current economy and they do not feel that it's or the ones that I've talked to anyway have told me that they don't think it's overheated 
the economic indicators show that we're going to keep going and that companies are still have good ratios to price to earnings and there's still good indicators that, that the economy is going to stay going. I, as a real estate guy, what I see happening is interest rates going up. And we're buying an apartment complex right now and being quoted at like five, five and a quarter, where the apartment complex we bought two years ago, we, we got a rate at 3.375 was our interest rate. Uh, and so now I'm a full two points above where the market was for money. And so I think that will start to affect larger real estate. And I think, I think it's going to crash. The people that are talking about a crash, forget it. It's not. I just don't, I just don't see it. I just don't. I do think that things are going to slow down. And aside from like a third party thing, you know, world war or something bad happening, so some catastrophic events or something like that, that kind of throw us all through a tailspin. But I don't predict a, a real estate crash. There's a lot of people I see that are just sitting around their money waiting for the market to crash so they can get in. I don't think that's a good reason to do that. But I do think things are going to slow down, which would probably be good for us if they just pulled back a little bit and, and maybe got a little less aggressive. So that's what I think. And, and it, it'll be nothing like what we saw in 2008, 2009, which was complete like standstill, bottom mm-hmm. fell out. It was bad. I mean, it wasn't, it's not something that anyone should wish should happen again. And the people that are wishing for it to happen again don't own any real estate. You know? <laughs> right. But they might after, after such a crash. They know, but they don't have the balls to go out and pick it up themselves. They, they don't, pardon my French. They don't have the courage to go out and get it. They don't realize that when that happened, you could not get a loan. You could not mm-hmm. get equity. You could not get anything. The reason that it stopped was because all fi- the flow of finance stopped as well. That's why the bottom fell out. Um, and also because of overinflated mortgages and subprime garbage and stuff like that. Because of all that, that's another reason. But you just you couldn't go and just buy any piece of real estate you wanted to for super cheap price. Mm-hmm. You couldn't get a loan. They, don't, they didn't see the other side of that. Mm-hmm. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Good, great, great thoughts. Excellent thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Let's assume that a crash doesn't happen, but let's assume that, that there's a downturn or a pullback. Uh, yeah, yeah. Moderate, not not crash level, not run for the hills. Level. A slowdown, right. What, yeah, a slowdown. What What do you do as a real estate investor? What do you do to protect yourself during during something like that? Well, I'm, I'm locking rates for as long as I can right now. Um, when we do refinance or when we do... Because again, rates are going to go up. And so... That's I'm trying to lock interest rates for 10 years for most of my purchases or refinances of property or whatever. That's what I'm trying to... That's the biggest thing I can do. I'm also trying... I try and buy in areas that are somewhat recession resistant. People say recession proof. Well, you can't be recession proof. You can be recession resistant though. I don't do luxury real estate at all because I think that if we do have a slowdown or a topple, if there is a bubble, it's in luxury real estate. If you look at the price of schwanky, nice real estate in, in nice A plus areas, that's really what's run up big. Like, you know, prices of properties in San Francisco and lower Manhattan or whatever. So I don't do stuff in luxury A plus markets. I do workforce housing, you know, for folks that are that are just the the bread and butter of the economy, earning their income right around the median. That's the kind of real estate that I do to hedge my to hedge my bets against the slowdown. That's exactly what I exactly the way I look at it too. Um, workforce housing, being C class assets. Uh, I always look at it is during a recession, those assets are going to be the ones that are going to be protected. Um, the higher end stuff, people can always leave because they don't need it, you know. But you need somewhere to live, so why not? You know, I, I yeah. look at that being C class plus space as 
that perfect in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And not D, not D class assets, not A class assets, maybe, maybe like a C plus somewhere in there. Uh, that's what we go after. So, you know, with, with all these different assets you have, how do you end up handling your accounting and, and bookkeeping side of the business? Do you handle it yourself or you outsource that? We're in the middle of a transition right now. It's funny you bring that up because I was actually at a conference, if I can plug you, Brandon, that you got into my, you, you've like planted all kinds of little seeds in my head, man, when we were waiting out in front of that restaurant at the Mid-Atlantic Summit last year. Um, it's like, well, have you tried build.com? I'm like, uh-uh. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? I'm like, no. And so since that conversation, you spurred a lot of inspiration in, in us as a company to you know get with the program and start and do more online accounting and, and look at right before that we had a full-time office manager that ran a lot of our financials and ran a lot of our bills coming in and out. She's working 40 hours a week. We're now transitioning out of that out of that position and looking to do a lot of our work through just third-party bookkeeping, you know, through eChex, ACH, third-party services to run our books and to keep our financials, QuickBooks online, which we've been able to do because we don't we used to manage the real estate directly. If you do that, if, if any of your listeners are doing that, they need a third party. I think they need a third party service like Rent Manager, Appfolio, Buildium. Oh, what's the other one? I might've missed one. Oh, Yardi. You know, one of those four to do their company financials. You can get QuickBooks to do it. But as I understand, you guys could probably debate me on this. It'd be a good conversation. I understand you have to trick QuickBooks into running real estate directly, meaning like tenants paying rent into the system and everything like that. Is that true? Yeah, we don't recommend QuickBooks for property management. QuickBooks would be the software where you consolidate the financial reports, like going out to your investors or just your own financial reports. But it yep. would you would definitely need something like an Appfolio or Buildium that yep. it's actually managing the properties, paying the bills, yep. collecting the rents. We used to. Appfolio is like, you know, Craigslist merge with you know, merge with QuickBooks. <laughs> but it understands how to work with tenants as well. Yeah, we love that folio. Uh, and rent manager too. And all, they're all great. But our, our property manager uses that. And they send us a, a wire for our proceeds at the mm-hmm. end of the month. And then they send us a P&L and an owner statement, right? Then we take that and we reconcile that in QuickBooks to say, and then we collapse a lot of the sub accounts. Like they'll send me, I don't know, maybe 30 sub accounts for maintenance, you know, and I collapse them all into maintenance, you know, yeah. <laughs> like it'll be, you know, plumbing and electrical and plumbing labor materials, you know, and so it just all breaks down, which is good to understand it. But then when I'm sending a consolidated financial to my investors, they kind of sort of don't care what we paid in electrical versus plumbing versus this versus that as the asset manager, I need to see that. But then we collapse it all into maybe seven or eight line items. And then our investors get a consolidated P&L. How often do you send out these consolidated financial reports to your investors? For bigger properties, I, again, this is what we're going to be doing. Again, this is with Appfolio. Appfolio doesn't let you... I mean, you can you can collapse some of it, but it still is fairly robust and it's it can be a little more complicated. But moving forward, we're, I'd like to be sending out stuff once a quarter to investors. Yeah, you know, Right now, uh, for one of our bigger assets, we send out a, a statement once a quarter and we're just sending them the statement we get from Yardi through uh, our property man this is for a 198 unit complex we have in North Carolina. We send that we we send them monthly summaries, like bullet points. Here's, you know, here's how we did. And then quarterly we'll send them a financial statement. Investors have a lot of trust for their asset manager. It's really I view it to be on us to do deep dive into the numbers for them and then send them a brief, 
you know, here's what vacancy was, this is what rent collection were, this is what this looked like. And most importantly, this is what you're going to make. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we send a deep dive quarterly financial um, and then monthly quickie updates. So you're taking the, the property management reports and you're sending those to investors and your plan is to move to like a QuickBooks online and the consolidate that right. into more professional uh, financial reports. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, the, the, the PM send us really detailed reports, but I want to collapse it to work. I think, if, I think investors want to see this is how much rent we made. This is the bills that we paid. This is how much is left. You know, and it doesn't need to be a six page, six page financial report. I should be the one reading that. Right. They should be the one reading the half a page financial report. Yeah. Cause we, we've had similar experiences with our clients that are running syndications. They sometimes before they come to us, they're running everything out of Appfolio Building and Yardy or one of the other ones. And they're trying to do all their financial reporting there too. And we've experienced the same thing where, mm-hmm. hey, these systems are amazing for property management. They're not that great for reporting to investors. They're yep. great for you to look at. They're not that great for reporting to investors for a number of different reasons. One of them that you cited, which is I just want to collapse the data and not show the investors a ton of stuff because it's just going to overwhelm them. They, and yep. I want to see it anyway. Or, I mean, it'll cause your investor to focus on something that doesn't matter because they, they may look at that and be like, hey, wait a minute, your landscaping has gone up you know, 10% in the last three months. And I'm like, well, that's because it's summer. Okay. That's what happens, you know, like, but I know that, right. But they don't. And then I don't want, I don't want to give them more data than just not that they need, but just then it's necessary for them to get into an anal- analysis mode on. But actually what we're looking to do is to make the, the P&L that we send match to the categories that are shown in the offering memorandum. So I can say, this is what we said we're going to do, right? This is what we are doing. So you can look to see each, each an offering memorandum for a syndication shows, you know, year one, your should show year one, year two, year three, this is what we're going to do. And those reports, those projections are not three pages long. It's normally one page, a half a page, whatever. So I really, what we want to do is to mate it to what we sent in the offering memorandum to say, you know, budget versus actual for each year. So investors, we can hold ourselves accountable that way. That's really what they want to see, I think. agree with what you just said. Investors don't really care about the nitty gritty details. They just want to see the high level overview. And if you can show them, hey, look, this is what we said we're going to do. And it's what we actually did. You know, that not only builds trust with your investors, but they better understand what they're investing in and, you know, what they can expect from you in the future. And and the more clear you can make that for them, I think the better it is for both parties. Yeah. Um, when it comes to your tax situations, like do, do your investors ask you about how this will affect them tax-wise and how do you go about answering that? Yeah, no, they, they, that's a big question. And I mean, we get a lot of people that, that come into our, our uh, projects that, that that's one of their biggest questions is like, how is this going to affect my tax? You know, then they'll be have a self-directed IRA. So we'll, have, we'll talk about, you know, unrealized business income tax, UBIT. I was going to just say UBIT, but I didn't want to just, you know, sling an acronym out there without, you know, so we'll talk about UBIT. We'll talk about the passive loss that they get through owning the real estate in their own name if they have it or in in an LLC, if it's not through a retirement account, you know, and so I I make sure they understand the benefits of the the tax benefits of owning real estate. Um, Some of them have never gotten a K-1, so they don't know what that is. I have to explain that to them and explain to them, okay, listen, the K-1 is going to say one number for what you have for your carry through income. And then you're going to get a check for something different. And so let's discuss that. So I, I make sure that we go there. Um, and a lot of times for apartment building ownership specifically, 
taxes are one of the biggest benefits that they get in, in being involved in real estate. And I know you might have mentioned before that you were contemplating doing a cost seg study on one of the properties you owned. Uh, yep. What where you're currently at with that study in, in the, the evaluation phase? Sure. Well, we own a, I'd mentioned it before, a 198 unit building in North Carolina. Um, we're buying a 166 unit complex in Lexington, Kentucky. And so uh, on the new one, we may put it into the offering memorandum. But on the one in North Carolina, we did not put it out there in the offering memorandum that we were going to be doing a cost seg study. I think that you need to make investors aware that you're going to do these kinds of things because it creates a not, not so much a taxable event, but it, it creates a, a conversation. It creates a thing, you know, this you know, perhaps major deduction on their K-1 um, because of the cost segregation study that you're going to do that they, they should, A, they should be aware of it. But I also view, and I don't know if you, we should back up and get into what a cost seg is, but I view them as a double-edged sword. That it's not, there's some investors that they just love them and they do them on every deal that they do. I see both sides of how it's a positive, but there's also negative, I see negative sides to it. You guys can talk, we can debate that, but I see the negative side of it, which is pretty much what happens when you sell. Yeah. Just to recap for everybody, a cost segregation study is when an engineering team or an accounting team will go into your property and break down the building's components into different class lives. And usually anywhere from 25 to 30% of your building's value can be classified as five, seven, and 15-year property, which is depreciated at accelerated uh, rates. And with the new 2018 tax law, you actually depreciate the entire value of the five, seven, and 15-year property in the first year. And that usually creates significant passive losses. Mm -hmm. And the benefit of that is you get increased cash flow in the the beginning years. The downside to that is there's depreciation recapture tax, which is taxed up to 25% on the back end once you sell the property. And I think you know, that's that's what you were talking about, Matt, the, the downside, the dark side mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Well, there's investors out there that let, let, let's say I owned an apartment building in my own name. Or not my own name, or just my, I own myself. I didn't syndicate it. Then I want to hold it for as long as I want to hold it. And then I want to sell. I can then sell it and then do a 1031 exchange um, where I can do a tax. I can defer the income tax defer the depreciation payback, defer all that stuff and roll it into the next asset and then do a cost seg study there and then start the carousel all over again, right? And uh, if you are a sole owner, then you hold it for, you know, like hold it for as long as you can, keep doing tax deferred exchanges and then, you know, at some point pass, you know, die and pass it along to your kids or your heirs and the, a lot of the tax stuff gets wiped, right? That's the way that's, layman's explanation of this, uh, not a CPA's explanation, but because we're syndicating and because we're bringing in large pools of investors to be a part of these deals, uh, we can't, not that we can't, but it's, it's difficult to do tax deferred exchanges and to get out to, to like herd the cats and to get all the investors to agree to a, yeah, we're all going to stick around for another five years and trade into the next deal probably is not going to happen for larger stuff. We've done 1031s on smaller collections of investors, but for the one in North Carolina, we have 35 investors. You know, So the chances of them all agreeing to roll into the next one, it's probably slim. Somebody's one of those 35 is going to say no. Um, and most of them, more likely half of them will. You know, So that, that's the double-edged sword. But talk to me. Why, why is that not a concern? Is that a concern or is that not a concern? Or is there a way around it? Take me to school. 
Well, you know, I would say that if you're going to be doing large syndications and you get a lot of accredited investors in there, chances are they're going to be taxed at 35, 37% tax bracket, right? Sure. So they're getting to defer that income because you're doing the cost seg and you're getting all those depreciations and uh, you're essentially getting a loss. They're not paying the income they could potentially be paying at a 35 or 37% tax rate. Whereas when it's recaptured, it's only recaptured at a maximum of 25%. So if you think about it, if you didn't do the cost seg and then you did have income, say you did show a, a positive income, they're paying it at 35, 37% on that income, whereas they're only recapturing at 25%. So it's a 12% spread there. Mm-hmm. So that would be, you know, on a syndication, you know, assuming most of them are credit investors, I think that's where it makes sense. But, you know, to your point, I also agree that if you're going to try to do the 1031 route, it is very difficult to do on a syndication. Yeah, and a couple other factors there too. You know, like like can your investors even take the passive losses if they're generated, um, unless they are, unless they or a spouse is a real estate professional, or they have passive income to offset the passive losses that you're generating, they might not even be able to take the the passive losses, just depending on their personal situation. They might instead just become suspended and carry forward. But like you said, we we have clients that will not engage in cost seg studies. Because they just they don't want to have the shock and awe at some later point when they have massive gains that their investors are <laughs> as a result of taking the cost seg study in an earlier year. Yeah, yeah. I think that you're pushing a lot of things forward. That if if you do sell, you're gonna have you got to pay the piper, man. I mean, you don't get the money for free. Um, Thomas, I really liked what you said about that twelve percent. That is actually that's a real valid thing worth talking about, but. Um, you know, Brandon, what you said is, is, is interesting too, because some investors, uh, some um, passive investors, just they, they actually don't, they, they can't take advantage of it like I can, because I can build up a huge pool of passive yeah. losses. I believe, not to like get controversial, but that's how Donald Trump didn't pay taxes for like 10 years, right? Because he had so much passive losses built up that he was able to burn it off over that time. You guys know better than I do, but isn't that, isn't that what happened? Uh, partially. He also utilized a loophole in the tax code that was subsequently closed after he utilized it. <laughs> so yes and no. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a good point because we, yeah, I mean, I can see it. Like there's syndicators that look at it and say, oh, wow, cost seg is definitely something that I need to do for myself. Uh, yeah. But what about your investors? Where do they, where do they stand? And our syndicators that do use cost seg successfully will generally have something in the operating agreement that the investor is signing or they will be talking to investors about this and making sure that yeah. they, they can use it. So they, they kind of like understand their investor situation from a tax perspective before they pull the trigger, which is really interesting because now we're not just real estate investing. We're actually trying to maximize our investor returns. So this is an interesting conversation. And I, I didn't even know we we're going to go here on your podcast, but I just <laughs> thought I, I got two you know, super, like, super smart tax guys in front of me here. And I think it'd be good for your audience to, for a cool conversation. Um, we own an office building and I've got a solar guy that's banging on my door to put solar on the roof of this building I'm sitting in right now. And the way that he's been talking about doing it is, is saying, like, okay, you take a high net worth individual. That high net worth individual becomes a partner with you and they front the money. The, ta- the solar system has a dollar, 30% dollar for dollar tax credit, meaning every nickel that he puts up for that system, 30% of that gets 
a direct credit on his income tax, not a tax deduction. He gets a tax forgiveness for every dollar for 30% of that cost of the solar system. On top of that, uh, we get to depreciate hundred percent, hundred percent of the, of the depreciation cost could kick in 2018. If we do it in 2019 is 50%, still a nice benefit, right? Mm-hmm. There are some LLC shell games you have to play to pass all of those benefits over to the investor to where me as the owner of the building, really what I want is I want cheap electricity. You know, I want electricity from the, off the grid, from the solar system. I happen to be in New Jersey. New Jersey has these things called SREC, standing for um, SREC, I think Solar Renewable Energy Credits. And you get a credit from the Board of Public Utilities each month for the amount of KWs that you generate. I'm totally butchering this thing, but you know what I'm, you're, you're shaking your head, Brandon, you know what I'm talking about. So, yeah. um, Different states have different things, but the Board of Public Utilities pays you for however many KWs you generate in that month. You get like a, a credit and it's a commodity. It goes up and goes down. So yeah. what are your thoughts on the tax benefits of solar? I think that I totally summarized right there. There's way more to it, but that's what a solar guy is pitching me right now. Yeah. So I am not an expert on solar nor the solar credits. It gets really complicated really fast because you do have the state and local credits that also need to be factored in in addition to the federal credits. Now, what I believe, I believe how it works on the federal level is when you put any type of solar on a property that is generating passive income, the Mm. credits will only offset the tax associated with that passive income. So in order for anybody to take the credit, the property needs to produce positive net income after depreciation, and then the credit will be taken against the tax that is spinning off from that positive income, if that makes sense. It doesn't pass through. Like, so if you're an LLC, well, you can't pass through, that. But I could not go and put, and this is just my understanding, I could be totally wrong. But from what I believe that I understand is I could not go and put solar panels on my rental property and take a 30% credit on my personal tax returns for the cost of the solar panels. What I could do is that credit sits there and any year that my rental property produces net positive rental income, it then produces tax associated with that net positive rental income, which I can then offset with the credit that's sitting there. Well, what you could do is you could sell the rental property within a couple of years because I do understand yes. that the that there is a sunset clause on those tax credits. I think it's five years uh, yes. that you got to that you got to use them. And so, as you know, rental property, unless you've got a screaming hot deal, rental property because of depreciation and because of everything else, not it's like solar depreciation, just the property itself, they don't make a whole lot of money on paper after you've taken a lot of the deductions that are associated with them, you may, you make your most of your taxable money comes in after you sell them. They make cash flow, or they should, you know, and, you know they, they're supposed to, but on a tax perspective, they actually don't make a ton in, in that. So what if you were to put solar on a rental property and then sell that rental property and that would create a taxable event, but you would be forgiven that tax, I would think, because again, you, you know, again, I, we're, these are three guys, we don't know, we're not like solar experts or whatnot, but it's an interesting conversation. And I think that, that it's one of those things that more real estate guys should be looking into because, yeah. hey, it's a good thing to do. You know, you're kind of freeing the planet of all this carbon that we're pumping into the air. And also there's some benefits out there for it, which I think are not as broadcast as they could be around it. So I thought I'd be curious to at least bring up the conversation for interest, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe that it works in the way that you just described. So if you, if you liquidate the property, you have capital gain, uh, you can use the credits to offset that. The problem with that is capital gain is taxed at a maximum 23.8%. So I'm using credits to offset something that's, you know, I guess dollar for dollar, it wouldn't really matter at the end of the day. So yeah, we'll just call it viable. And uh, then we'll just say it's depending on your facts and circumstances and the location that you live in. Please yeah. contact your provider to learn more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I again, I think it's one of those things that um, is interesting, you know. And yeah. one more tax thing to bring up: those SRECs uh, are not taxable. Like when you get those those renewable energy credits from the um, from the local board in New Jersey, anyway, from the Board of Public Utilities in New Jersey, anyway, the SRECs are not taxable income, which is pretty cool. You know, the one thing about the tax credits for the for the energy, um, for the solar is there's a bunch of clients who did ask me about that like a few months ago. And I did a whole entire like research report for them on exactly how it would work. I just don't recall off the top of my head. So if you're out there and you want to know about it, you know, feel free to ask your tax advisor, feel free to ask us and, you know, we'll get you an answer. Uh, just uh, right now, we just can't give you a definitive answer. There, are, This just goes to show that there are, and again, let's like all the way back, right? There are so many great tax benefits that I'm preaching to the choir, but so many great tax benefits that that you can check out in real estate. And that's, you know, cost segregation analysis, solar, just just the simple concept of depreciation and how it benefits a a passive investor, possibly, and how it benefits us as the benefits me as the the operator or the general partner. I mean, we sold an apartment building one time, like a big apartment building that we were the sole owners of. And we got to keep every dime because we had so many pass forward, carry forward losses as real estate professionals, we got to keep all the money from selling this apartment complex tax-free. It was, it was phenomenal. It was a really, really great um, shot in the arm for our company. And so I just think that, that real estate is such a great vehicle for tax creativity, for tax, you know, tax benefits. Yeah. There's a, there's a person, one of my mastermind groups that makes a living off of getting her clients to invest in Georgia film credits. Now, I have no idea what those are or how they work, but it sounded cool when she was talking about them. Yeah. You are right. There's tons of different tax things that you can do. And a lot that, man, even us, like we, we like to be creative. You know, we bill ourselves out as creative real estate CPAs. We, we try to figure out yeah. cool things that we can do to help lower your taxable income. And then I hear about Georgia film credits. And I'm like, man, I'm just, we're just yeah. on the surface over here. <laughs> There's another thing called conservation easements. Have you heard yes. about those? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, buddy of mine just talked to me about it. And I'm like, holy, wow, man, that sounds insane. And then so he explained it to me and not something that, again, I get enough write-offs that I don't need to look into that. But this, you know, buddy of mine's a dentist that makes, you know, gargantuan. There's a lot of money in pulling out teeth, you know. Uh, and so um, he, he makes a lot of money, you know, running dental operation. And so he was looking for creative ways to uh, reduce his tax burden. And he found these conservation easements. And I mean, yeah. it's like just, really interesting uh, what what's out there you know we we have a show coming out i believe in a couple of weeks after releasing this show on conservation easements so we've got a guy that does this and we are going to be interviewing him so stay that's awesome tuned and uh and check us out here in a couple of weeks if you want to i will be listening to that show just out of curiosity more than anything because it just sounds like a really really creative way to reduce tax burden so yeah yeah it's phenomenal so so matt you wrote a book called raising private capital not too long ago. Uh, what are your top three tips for raising private capital that you wouldn't mind sharing with our audience? Sure. 
So this is, um, there are a lot of tax conversations because there's those conversations as a, um, I think that I'll, I'll do tip number one, that the, the book talks about deal providers, cash providers. So a deal provider is somebody who goes out and finds a apartment building deal, goes out and finds a fix and flip, goes out and finds the opportunity. There is the cash provider, somebody who is going to invest passively without taking the day-to-day operations on in the deal. They're, they're the person that, that puts in money, the deal provider puts in time, okay? You marry those two together and you have a real estate, private equity relationship, right? I think the first like tip that's in the book quite a bit is the deal provider needs to be sure that they understand the tax implications of things that are available for the cash provider. Understand the cash provider's goals. Are they investing in an IRA, through an IRA? When are they going to retire? Are they higher? Are they a high income earner that they would benefit from tax write-offs and tax deductions? So be able to speak intelligently. It takes for having a really good CPA in their in your corner, but as a deal provider, be able to speak intelligently about how what you're offering a cash provider is going to help or even hurt them from a tax perspective. Uh, I've had people that wanted to invest in equity in fix and flips with cash out of their own pocket, and I said you don't want to do that. Because you're going to end up having to pay, you know, the government a big chunk of what you make, in, in uh, on the equity side of these fix and flips, it's it's that's a capital gains event, and you have to pay capital gains tax. So being able to explain that to them is is number one. Number two is real simple. Everybody knows people with money. I was I, we've raised uh, millions of dollars in equity and, and in loans for real estate transactions. We've done thirty five million in transactions involving some kind of private money, either a loan or equity. And the bottom line is that I'm not a member of a country club. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I'm not just, you know, bred all around money and that's how I did it. These are just, I was able to build it up originally through my own personal network and then slowly took it out from there. And so my, I submitted that anyone reading that book, if they look at it the right way, they know there are, there is money in their network that they can tap into themselves. And the book gives them the tools on how to look for it, where to find it, how to close it, how to bring it into your, into your business. And the third thing that the book talks about is cautionary tales, personal stuff that's happened to me where we've gotten, we've had bad things happen in the real estate business involving private money and how to avoid those things. Um, and also just how to unwind a private money because a private, private money arrangement because people don't talk enough. People talk about finding deals, finding the money, but that's half the conversation. Then making it operate and run properly and then unwinding it is the other side of the conversation. So those are the three, three quickie tips for, that are in the book, among many, many other things. And if you need you know, if you don't want me asking, how do you end up like what CRM do you recommend a CRM software for somebody to use to manage all their their contacts for for um, you know their investor relationships? I do. We looked at Salesforce. We looked at some of the other ones, some of the big ones that are out there. Pipedrive is another one. Um, but we ended up going with Podio, which is pretty much like a like a super, you know, open template, open open form type of thing. I mean, it, it's like WordPress, where if you know how to use it, you can program it to do whatever you want. And so we use Podio for our investor database. What I like about it is Podio talks to. Uh, we use a newsletter, like an eblast newsletter, Mailchimp. When Podio talks to Mailchimp. It talks to Google Forms. When people want to invest with us, they fill out a Google form that populates Podio, and then when then they automatically go into our newsletter database and stuff. And when I'm talking to an, a new investor or an existing investor, I can just pull up Podio and type in my conversation I'm having with them, so I can just keep the database updated. So there's a bunch of database softwares out there, but I but I think Podio is one of the ones that works for us because of how versatile and flexible it is. 
Yeah, we, we used to use Podio pretty extensively until we we actually switched to a more uh, stringent project management platform. We still use Podio for our CRM, but Podio was extremely flexible and it helped us scale the way that we have. Uh, we've been able to modify it however needed. The flexibility eventually led to issues with project management. So we actually ended up needing something that was not flexible so that we yeah. could make our projects better. Um, but yeah, love Podio, love the integrations. Very cool to hear that you're using it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say your strongest marketing platform is? How do you uh, best connect with these folks to let them know that you exist? Um, well, okay, I have a YouTube channel, uh, you know, youtube.com forward slash DeRosa group, D-E-R-O-S-A group. Um, and that's so, my YouTube channel is something I've been shooting YouTube videos for probably four years, five years, something like that. You know, Brandon, you and I might have done a YouTube video together if we hadn't. If I haven't, we should. And that, uh, but uh, but we do uh, probably two to three, sometimes four videos a week on uh, on our YouTube channel, and just we just put out, just pump out, just good wholesome content, real knowledge, nothing self, not too self promotional aside from talking about deals that we're actually doing, and just real education about real estate and that, and that's been far and away a, be, a great way to get us for, to get our name out there, to, to raise our hand in the air to say, Hey, we're folks that know what we're talking about. And you should hear more about what we're doing. And that's drawn people that want to learn from us and also people that want to invest with us. Awesome. Awesome. So if you had to give one last tip to our audience on, you know, whatever you think would help them in their investment careers, what would that be? Um, hmm. Have goals and don't give up. So it sounds so it sounds like a, like a you know Anthony Robbins kind of thing, but it's not. It's just you've got to set really good goals that are that are focused, um, and then don't change your mind off of like don't lose focus on those goals, and then don't let uh, a bad day or a bad week or a bad month pull you off of that. Because I attribute a lot of my success to just staying focused on my goals and staying focused on what I want to see for my business for myself. Um, you no, know, even if I even if you know, speed bumps tend to pull me off. 100% agree with that. I uh, can't be a shiny object chaser. And mm-hmm. you got to be very disciplined on what, you know, what you're chasing, what you're going to get. So Matt, I would thank you so much for coming on the show today. We definitely appreciate you having on. How is the best way for our listeners to contact you? So they can just go to my website, derosagroup.com. They can check out my book, Raising Private Capital, at the on that website. They can buy a copy of it. They can hear more about it. Um, uh, just go to derosagroup.com. They can hear more about investing or just learn from us, whatever it is. Just more about us as a company. Um, it, it's all right up there on our website. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. And um, we will let you know when it's out. Sure. Great. Thanks. Thank you so much for being here, for having me here with you guys. Look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Thanks, Matt. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.